Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore and you are listening to Black on the Air. I appreciate you choosing this podcast. Um, always good to be with you guys in our little conversations. This uh, <laughs> this week we have one of my favorite people on television right now, Bomani Jones. Many of you know him uh, from ESPN. Uh, he's been on the air there for a while now. Had a great show called High Noon. That was awesome. And... He's been appearing on Bob Costa's show, but now he has his own show on HBO called Game Theory. And uh, it's a good mix of his uh, his wit and his flair for uh, the way he likes to describe situations. And it's, it's a cool show on HBO. So we had a nice little chat the other day. I hope you enjoy it, talking about his show. Now, I missed, I wasn't on last week. Um, it was a scheduled uh, break. And of course, whenever I'm not on, like everything happens. It's like everything happens, you know. And, you know, the week before last week, of course, was the Oscars and the whole Will Smith thing. And I really haven't had a chance to weigh in on it. Um, I was on Bill Simmons' show, I think the day after or something, and talked about it briefly. And... You know, a lot of people, and you guys may be sick of even talking about it right now. I acknowledge that. But since I haven't had a chance to really talk about it, I thought I'd bring it up. And um, I see you out there, Terry. I see you. <laughs> My friend Terry texts me. You haven't talked about the Will Smith thing yet. When are you going to talk about it? Well, I haven't had a chance to. All right. So um, the Academy has just uh, made a decision also on what the punishment, quote unquote, is going to be. And I guess there's a 10-year suspension from going to the Oscars, which is very surreal. Damn it. I can't go to the Oscars now. What What did I do? You know, And all Academy-related events and that sort of thing. You know, and Will actually, um, I think, resigned from the Academy anyway. So it feels like kind of a, a muted slap, if you will. Um, and I'm not going to focus on that. And I'm not going to focus too much on the, um, how can I say this, the uh, the slap in the sense that we've all been talking about it, you know, um, it, it was very bizarre. Let, you know, let, let me just talk about it from my standpoint, because I, you know, it, first of all, I was watching the Academy Awards with my son and daughter uh, on Sunday night. 
and we were a little behind because um, we didn't watch it right when it started. So you know how you do with your DVR. You kind of just pause it right at the beginning. And uh, then you can zip through the commercials, right? So we were a good 45 minutes behind when it happened. And then I started getting all these texts. Did you see what Will Smith did? What happened? <laughs> did you see that? You know? And uh, I didn't dare go on Twitter because Twitter ruins everything when you're behind on something. And and then one friend of mine, I, I tried to tell them, I said, look, I'm behind. You know, everybody's texting me. I don't want to know. And then they told me everything that happened. Will just slapped, you know, Chris Rock. I'm like, I just told you I'm behind. Why did you spoil it for me? And the response was like, I was just mad, you know. But it's like, why, why would you do that? So unfortunately, when it happened, fortunately, unfortunately, I wasn't surprised. I knew something was coming up. So I didn't get to experience that same surprise that everyone had. But even though I wasn't surprised in the moment, I was still shocked, you know, watching it and seeing it happen. I mean, it was so surreal. Uh, And I watched it and I played it back a bit and we were talking about it in the moment. I was checking Twitter, you know, seeing... I couldn't believe it was real at first. I thought it had to have been staged, you know. But then it didn't make sense to stage something like that. Like, if it's a bit, what is the outcome of the bit? Um, So it was just very, very strange to me. Very surreal. And now that time has passed and everything, and people have talked about, you know, some people have taken sides on this. Well, he was just sticking up for his woman. And some people say, you know, Chris Rock, it was just a joke. You know, so I'm not going to talk about any of those two things, right? To me, I want to focus on Will and this. And I just, my thing is, I don't know who I was watching at that moment. (laughs) And I was very concerned about it. And his acceptance speech kind of doubled down on me not knowing what I was watching. I was very concerned about that acceptance speech. Um, the way he was crying was just a different type of crying, it seemed to me, than a normal, you know, happy crying. That, that was a deep feeling cry that, to me, betrayed something else is going on there. And my observation of this is, I think Will, to me, and this is just my opinion, I could be wrong. And by the way, I've worked with Will Smith, and, you know, I know Chris Rock. And by the way, I actually was... A writer on Fresh Prince, when Chris Rock appeared on Fresh Prince, I was there when both of them worked together way back in the day, you know. Damn, Larry, you old. We've already discussed this. You guys know how old I am. So, so this was all very bizarre. And I just recently worked with Will on a really great project on the 14th Amendment, you know, for Netflix called Amend. And we had great conversations on that. And... You know, I've worked with Will before and in different situations where I've kind of helped him out and that kind of stuff. And, you know, he's the same Will Smith that I've known for years and years and years, you know, Um, primarily a very positive person who is looking to, like, uh, let's say, inspire people. And I think he's in a time in his life right now uh, from when I was working with him very recently, which is why I'm commenting on this. He seemed to be in a part of his life where he wants to inspire, you know. And so his Instagram, his whole Instagram account was things that he's doing out in the world that are meant to, you know, for people to laugh or smile or whatever. You know, it's not like he's out there taking hard political stances and 
he's not trying to be angry right now in a rebel or whatever or stir the pot, let's say. You know, that's where he seems to be coming from in his life right now, from what I could observe. Right. But looking at that acceptance speech, I remember seeing somebody. It looked like somebody was in pain there on a different level. And I was just confused. You know, it just couldn't tell what was going on. And, you know, I was trying to make sense of this for days and days and days. And the the thing that really struck me, even in the moment in that acceptance speech, was when he talked about protection. You know, and it's interesting because we, uh, he talked about protecting his wife and all this stuff. And it's interesting because we talked about this on amend. The whole issue of coverture is what it was called, was that women were protected in marriage by men, which took away their agency, actually. You know, women couldn't even get credit cards without their husband saying so, you know. And this whole outdated notion of protection is something that women's liberation was fighting, where this notion that a man's protection of a woman covered everything in their life, even the ability to speak out of turn, you know, whatever, you know. It was kind of the, the foot on the neck, so to speak, of women trying to release themselves from that. You know, not I'm not talking about in the micro sense where a woman in a relationship might feel protected by a man in the micro sense. We're talking about in the macro sense of what culturally that means. And the word coverture was the word that was used to talk about this, uh, both in, in law and in, in culture, right? This is a man's position. And part of the argument against the ERA equal rights amendment was that women would lose that protection that society gives them naturally that a man provides primarily in the institution of marriage. Okay, I digress. But this notion that Will's putting out in the world in that acceptance speech to me goes against everything we had just written in that documentary that we did about women's liberation and. Uh, a word that I like to use called agency. You know, the whole point of women's liberation is that women have agency. They have a voice. You know, uh, the Me Too movement is all about that voice being uh, listened to for a change. You know, that women have felt that their voice was not listened to. that, Or if it was listened to, not as much as a man's voice was listened to. You know, so this notion that Will would put out that he's a protector of women seemed odd in that moment and it seemed to me to take away the agency of women and he was talking about it about some of the strongest women that i have seen on the national stage jada pinkett smith serena williams venus williams anjanu ellis these women are not shrinking violets you know i don't think they require will's protection it was an odd thing to say, you know, when he even intimated that Anjanu Ellis, a fantastic actress, you know, that he was providing protection on the set. Like he said something like that, which is bizarre because the opposite is actually true. Anjanu's um, ability to, you know, her ability as an actor. And by the way, this is how it works on sets. Like the person who's the, the, the real talent on the set, when you see their talent on display... Um, it makes you more comfortable. That kind of offers you protection to be a little freer in what you're doing, actually. If anything, her abilities, 
you know, created protection for Will to just explore and be that character and everything because he knew he was taken care of in in Anjanu Ellis right next to him. Um, like maybe it might have been dual protection of each other, but he certainly wasn't protecting her. So I this notion was strange to me, you know, and to me it belied something else that's happening underneath. Um, and the whole agency part, Jada apparently has even told people close to her, like in the last couple of days, it's come out that she's told her friend that she felt Will Slap was overreacting. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. And that she said she's able to protect herself. I agree. I completely agree. And she, I mean, this is out. This is what she has said. You know, and she's correct about that. Jada has agency. She is able to protect herself. She doesn't require that sort of protection, you know, especially from words, especially from a joke, you know. Um, so what was going on with Will? Why did he feel the need to do this? You know, what happened? And this is why I say I am concerned for him. And by the way, he knows who Jada is. He knows how strong she is. He's, she's not, he knows she can protect herself. Um, and, and when you think about Will Smith, too, this is a guy who carefully controls his image. One of the things he is really good at is image control. You know, he cultivated an image through happy rap, you know, not gangster rap, happy rap, Fresh Prince, you know, people loved his energy. They loved his spirit and all that stuff. And he decided this is what needs to be the package of Will Smith out in the world, this positive thing, you know, and he's been good at cultivating that image. He's very careful about it. Will Smith is not stupid, you guys. He's not dumb. You know, he's not being guided by someone else in this. He's in control of that, you know, and by the way, He's not fake with it, you know, and I say this having been around him enough. I can sniff out the fakeness. He's very genuine about this. His his reasons may be related to things that maybe happened in his past or whatever, but he's actually very genuine about it. Like he he wants this version of the world of himself genuinely from a genuine point of view. It's not cynical. It's not like these motherfuckers are going to think I'm nice, but I'm really a motherfucker. No, it's not that at all. You know, he, he puts that out kind of naturally. Now I don't, you know, I don't have a personal relationship with them the way that his children and his wife does. So maybe he has a struggle with that. I don't know, but he doesn't seem to when he's around people, right? Like he's, we have an, our uh, opinion of Will Smith has never been, man, Will Smith is, that motherfucker is an impulse person. You never know what's going to happen with him. He might just snap in any minute. No one has ever said that about Will Smith. Ever, 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 ever. Right? Um, so to me, I think this means that what I saw was not Will Smith reacting to something Chris Rock said. I think he there's a crisis that's going on in his life and anger had to find a way to get out and i think what we saw in front of us was him having what i would call a 
an incident of public solitude. Um, what is public solitude, Larry? Well, this is an expression that's used in acting, actually, uh, called public solitude. Public solitude, from an acting standpoint, let's talk about that, is like an actor's ability to be in public and yet be completely private, um, completely vulnerable, completely in the moment. Like, you don't even know people around you. The best actors have the ability to do this with a crew around them, with people watching them, or whether they're on stage, to be completely public and completely private, both at the same time. That's what public solitude is. It felt to me, because Will Smith knows he's on television, he knows millions of people are watching, he knows you're not supposed to use bad language or be violent on television. By the way, if if he wasn't having a if this had happened like backstage like after it happened and it happened in the halls and maybe a camera caught it i think it would feel more understandable but it perplexed us because it happened so publicly and that's the part that i you know i, I couldn't square i believe he was having a moment of public solitude where what is public and what is a formality and what is the decorum washed away and something inside him had to get expressed. And the reason why I say crisis is because the way in which it expressed itself came at a very high cost. Okay? And this is why I said Will Smith is no dummy. He's very smart. He's very intelligent. You know? And even when you're in an unconscious state... Your your body's uh, intelligence and wanting, you know, whether it's inquisitive or whatever, or it's wanting to heal or whatever, is going to do something that it needs to do. And to me, it looked like anger needed to be expressed about something. I don't think it was about that joke. That's my opinion. But it needed to be expressed about something. And the reason why I call it a crisis is because the manner in which it was expressed made it impossible to ignore. This is not a therapy session. <laughs> this is not, like I said, behind the scenes. This is in such a, a form that you can't go past this moment without whatever your problem is being addressed. That, to me, is what defines crisis. That means the person is in a crisis. That's what that's what a call for help looks like when that sort of thing happens. And when I saw like pictures of his face when he was, you know, kind of crying during the speech and when people were consoling him, guys, and it pains me to say this, like the look in his face, it looked like there was this mask of of, of depression or sadness that's different than just being emotional. That's what I mean. It wasn't happy tears. Those are sad tears, I felt. And I don't want to say this person suffers depression. I'm not putting that out. Uh, it's something that um, I've had people in my life over the years, you know, who have suffered from depression and those sorts of things. And you can see this mask that comes upon them sometimes, and they're not even aware of it. And to me, I call it the sad mask. And it belies something inside that is in a crisis. And when it comes to depression, your well-being is in a crisis. Always. You know, you feel like you're drowning. 
That's what depression feels like. Clinical depression, not just being sad. I can't speak for him. This is my opinion. I could be totally wrong on this, you know, but the fact that it happened in the manner that it did and what I'm saying, what I know about this person makes me feel like this person is in a crisis and this is a call for help. And I will say, um, the Academy stuff, all that stuff's insignificant to me. I really don't care about that. Who gives a shit about that? He'll make it up with Chris Rock at some point or they won't, you know, he shouldn't have hit him. Absolutely wrong. I would never support that as right. I think it was it was a horrible, it was the wrong thing to do. But you know what? I feel like they'll probably come together at some point. And I'm not worried about Chris Rock. Chris Rock, um, moving on as comedian, he'll make the jokes about it. They'll be brilliant, all that stuff. But as somebody who has worked with Will, and I like Will a lot, I wish him the best, you know, and I wish him well. And I have empathy for him in this. And when I was telling people when it happened that I actually have empathy for Will, they're like, how can you have empathy for him? (laughs) You know, he hit that person. And I said, I know, but there's something else going on, you know. So my takeaway at the end of the day is I feel sorry for my brother. You know, I wish him well, you guys. I hope he gets the the help that he is looking for and that I think the deep recesses of his soul is crying out for it's a bit overstated, I, I know, right there. But that's my take. There you go. All right. So we got uh, Bomani Jones <laughs> coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. Special guest today is, I think he's one of both the smartest and funniest (laughs) and insightful sports journalists out there. Emmy Award winner, uh, High Noon, was off the charts. It was such a good show. Uh, really enjoyed watching that, but he's back. He's on HBO now. Uh, he's not just hanging out with his boy, Bob Costas anymore. He's, uh, <laughs> he's got his own show game theory on HBO Sundays at 1130. Bomani Jones, welcome to black on the air. Bomani, it's good. To hey man, appreciate you having me. Hey man, big congrats on the show. It's always, I mean, when you can get real estate on HBO, I, I'm always like, whew. Good for you, man. When the opportunity came up, I guess the opportunity for the opportunity would probably be the better way to put it, because it wasn't like yeah. they called me and they were like, yo, um, <laughs> how'd you like to host this show, right? Yeah. When they hit me up about it, I had been saying for a long time, in fact, I tell people the story that I had a meeting, I guess it's 11 years ago, somewhere in there, with the then head of HBO Sports, and just kind of a meet and greet, right? So I'm sitting in his office. And he said something to the effect of what I would love to find is somebody who could be like a Bill Maher for sports. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, hey, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not <laughs> going to believe it because of who the person is that's telling you. But I'm sitting right here. And he was pol- he was polite about it. And then I met with him a year later and I reminded him about it. And he was polite about it. He's at a different place now. But mm-hmm. you fast forward like 10 years and this show is not like the same show is real time, like just to be clear, but right. I, this is in line with what I envisioned when he made that example. And when I told him like, no, nah, really I'm right here. 
Um, and so like to actually get to do it is pretty cool. Yeah. So you manifested this years ago. You saw this space for yourself. That's it is that intersection between what Mar Oliver and myself, if I may say so. You know, the stuff we did on the nightly show. In fact, even on the daily show, you've got Stu Miller over there, one of your producers. He's a daily show guy. Some of my old buddies over there. It's it's in that nice intersection. It's not just commentary. It's also it is entertaining on purpose. Yes. Yeah. No. No. That's the. Point. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so with sports doing a show like that, the challenge coming into it was, all right, guys, let's try to be successful. Where literally no one has been successful before. Like people yeah. have tried this at different points and we're not able to make it work. So like going into it, we knew we're dealing with something difficult. And part of why it's difficult is that there aren't that many people who care so much about sports that they'll go watch something that's not on ESPN about it, right? Like ESPN makes it really easy for you as a consumer of sports. Like, oh, I want to watch sports. What do I do? Okay, boom, I go there. And so if you're going to do it in this space, then you got to be able to figure out how to make it overlap into the interests of people who aren't like diehard sports fans. And also I think what was key about it is what I told them when I first talked to them was that if you just want to get a comedian telling jokes about sports, that's not going to work because sports fans take this too seriously, but you have to have a reason to listen to that person. And so I think we've got the combination of that. Plus I got some incredible people working on this show. Like, yeah. like the, the, the level of talent that's on this, just blows my mind every day when I talk to people about stuff. Like one of our writers said, what blew him away? He was just like, I thought just the writers would be funny in here. He's like, I'm talking to the news director and I'm talking to the footage producer. And he's like, yo, these dudes are hilarious. Like they're not just helping me get, you know, my piece together. They're also really funny and helping to make it funnier. So yeah. like, it's been just a while. Like for me, it's just been kind of a mind blowing experience. I've just never worked with a collection of people like this on my own project. Yeah. You're hitting a different area here because like you have uh, Brian Gumbel's show, even Bob Costas, and you have discussion shows like about the NFL and those. And they always take themselves seriously about sports. You know, humor is accidental or you have what I'll call jock humor. You know, right. You know, that's the humor that you'll see. Even TNT, the NBA show, which is arguably the most entertaining show, it's all jock humor. This is to me, it's. I don't know if I call it sports as much as a culture show, you know, where you you're coming at it. I feel a sports guy, but is uh, talking about the culture and sports is the backdrop. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. Like sports allows us to get in and talk about other stuff and like the yeah. way, like the way that we're going to go about this. And I think it's important, especially for this type of show. So we're going to be on like on linear TV. We're on on Sunday night. All right. Right. Yeah. People watching TV at Sunday night, is a negotiation if it's one per <laughs> yes. right, if it's one person in the room watching it of course you get to watch whatever you want if yeah. it's two people it's a negotiation so you need this show to not only entertain whoever the primary is on making that tv decision but also whoever the secondary whoever the person is that's over there so if the second person isn't that big into sports i need that person to be like oh yeah no but i like that one right mm -hmm. like you know like okay now we can do that right it, you know when they are making some level of compromise about this show, this has got to be interesting enough that the person who doesn't care that much about sports also gets something that they are entertained by and that they care about. And for me, for most of my career, that's been the space that my work is inhabited. And, mm -hmm. you know, so now I feel like 
doing it this way we're not going to sacrifice anything for people who are like really really deep in the sports that's not going to be an issue you're still going to be get what you need out of this but yeah we're we're going for this if we can't make a connection from the sports thing we're talking about to something bigger and broader then we're going to have to go to another topic yeah um what's your process like on the show like how do you choose your topics uh what's a typical day like in your production so the the longer essays that we do later those have now been mapped out they were mapped out five months ago um once we had a calendar and we knew what dates we were going to be on i went through and looked for like tentpole sports events of the calendar that we like okay so this is coming up here okay this is what we'll do so i knew our first show was going to be on selection sunday so you know a, a nine ten minute essay on television unless you're rachel maddow take weeks i had to do it every every night yeah those things are really hard yeah right right it takes a lot and so i was like selection sunday okay well what do i know will be something to talk about on selection sunday coach k's retirement tour okay cool i also know that we got to get that in on selection sunday because otherwise we got no idea when they're going to get eliminated from the tournament and so you know we won't be able to play it so like all of those were mapped out early We've had an evolution in terms of doing the topical stuff um, at the top of the show, where at first we were kind of doing short, trying to do short things on two, three, four topics or something like that. Right. And it wound up being like a comedy monologue. And one thing I'm adamant about in this process is my recognition that I am not a comedian. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, I, it's not the best use of me and I'm probably not going to be that effective at it. But the other thing we realized in doing it like that is that I wasn't able to stretch out and get deeper. And the comparative advantage I got over my peers is the ability to get deeper. So what we're doing now with the topical stuff is either we're going to look for one topic that's good for like a four minute essay or try to find a through line between the news of the week. So last week, what we wound up doing the through line was that basically rivalries are better than championship. Pettiness is better than accomplishment, Mm -hmm. right? So start with Carolina and Duke talked about lebron james trying to get this scoring record playing for these sorry lakers <laughs> hey be careful when you're talking about my lakers yeah man. yeah you know they sorry you matter about it than i am you know what i'm saying <laughs> uh so we had a couple more sports examples and then wrapped it up with will smith and his robbery with tupac shakur we're looking for inventive ways in at any point as to what we can do on that to express stuff. so with the deeper thing we're looking to either have a field piece or some sort of lander that we can produce and it's just thinking about what is it so with the duke piece for example after I came up with the idea about that, let's talk about how Coach K and his merry band of Caucasians were whooping our black asses <laughs> at basketball for decades. Oh, that's and, hilarious. And my man James Davis says, what if we did a museum exhibit about Coach K terrorizing black America? Boom. And then we had uh, Bashir saluting and uh, Diallo Riddle work as consultant producers with us. Oh, that's before we, Yeah, before we got on the air. And they helped us put them, you know, start putting the museum together. We had the writers go through. And so it's a real collaborative uh, sort of process in that way. Interviews, I wouldn't say they've been a scramble, but you know how interviews go, you get what you can right. get. Exactly. And so we've been doing field interviews. Like we did a field interview with Stephen A. Smith. We did one with Tracy Morgan. And those are almost catch as catch can. We did one with Vince Staples. He was not our episode one guest, but he was in town the day of episode one. So I had the anticlimactic thing of finishing my first episode of television and then going and changing clothes to come back to interview Vince Staples, you right. know, and then go from there. So that's that's kind of how we put it together. We Wednesday through Friday week, you know, the table reads and the round tables and the sure. backs and forths and all these new words I never knew before, the alts yes, and exactly. the, the TKs and the script and all of that, because I ain't never worked with a script before in my life. 
So right, yeah, right, we're, right. it's all coming together on that front. I have to give you props, man. You're very comfortable in this role because it is a different relationship. And I noticed in your first episode, it seemed like a, a bare studio. And now you seem to have an audience. And when you say you're not a comedian, you're getting a lot of laughs. So I don't know if I, yeah. I mean, you may not think of yourself as a comedian, but the your monologues are designed to get laughs. Yeah. Like, I think I'm funny, right? Like, I think, yeah. but, and it's been actually interesting in terms of process with me working with, our staff is a mix of like dyed in the wool comedy writers and also mm-hmm. people from, you know, from writers, but from different backgrounds. And so what's been interesting for, for me in seeing it is recognizing the things that writers are used to doing to get scripts, you know, believing they to get scripts to where they need to go. But I feel like for me, a lot of what I think are tricks to like make the funny I don't think of that necessary for me. And so my thought is the topics that we're doing by and large are going to have a certain level of gravity. They're going to have stakes involved. Like McKay sure. talks about stakes a lot. And Absolutely. The, the, and the point that he made to me early that I didn't really understand until we got going, but it landed was the stakes will make it easier to be funny. Absolutely. Always. Right. You know, we're, we're on this set. I'm in this suit. This all looks very important. You don't have to do as much to be funny because the whatever you do that's funny is almost going to play ironically with your surroundings or it's going to play ironically with the topic. And so I need the stuff to be written like I said it. It's got to sound like I'm talking because I got a decade or two in the game of people hearing me talk. They know what I sound like. They'll know if I sound like I'm not being myself. And so with the writers, it's like, hey, let's just shorten these setups, right? Like, we don't need home runs. Just line drives. Get this thing in play. Right. Like, I just need, I, like, quick jabs are going to be the thing that winds up doing it, and we can stay in the pocket of whatever the argument is, because the argument has to come first. Everything mm-hmm. else is going to be supplementing the argument. And so it's cool for me to do it with a live audience, because the first episode we didn't. We hadn't planned on a studio audience. And then the second episode, we did it. And for me, that's important for timing. I don't know what y'all laughing at. Like this thing, I think that might be the funniest thing in the world. And that has happened a couple of times. It's like, oh, you guys weren't nearly as amused by that as I was. Oh, wow. (laughs) You thought that was way funnier than I did. But I can now, I know how to play off the people because when I even do radio and podcasts, I need to imagine I'm talking to somebody and it's hard to do that in an empty TV studio. But now that we got people in this warmth and this energy, I can play off of them a little bit more and these quick jabs are going to hit even harder now because there's people getting taken by surprise by what comes. I think it's great that you have an audience because I think it helps to hone your voice in a way that not having an audience can't do. You have to trust your voice when you don't have an audience. And if you have a good voice, good for you, you know, and over time you hone it, but an audience clarifies things so much faster for you, Yeah, you know, like when you say, oh, I thought that was the important part. They just told me what the important part is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this also about the audience, too. When you do a new television show and nobody really knows it's there yet, mm. it is also helpful to know that there are people willing to show up in the rain to watch it. Sure. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, 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 that's the thing. This thing is new. It's catching. You know, we'll see, you know, how many episodes we get in the grand scheme or whatever. But. We got one of those shows that the people who watch it like it. We just want more people to watch it, right? Sure. And so you, you, if you don't really have a great handle on the number of people that are watching or whatever, for me, that first day we had an audience, and I look up, and it's 40 people sitting there. And then the last time we had one, we had like 80 people, and it was a legitimate downpour in New York City, and 80 people showed up. It mm-hmm. does help to know, like, oh, okay, people are checking for this. Got it. 
that's cool. Have you heard word out in the world? Have you gotten feedback? Have you heard people talk about it at all? Has it penetrated yet? I know because it's so early. Yeah. It takes a while for people to even know something's there. You know, you could be on for a couple of years. People go, oh, I didn't know you had a show. You know, it's like, I've been on for two years. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, people come up to me about I watch you every day with Dan and Poppy. Like, dude, I haven't done that in five years. Exactly. People do that all the time. Yeah. We're getting more of the feedback and we're getting there. Because honestly, like the first level of feedback is the people you work with slash for. And the people we work for are very happy with, what we're, with what we're doing so far. And that that part certainly feels good. But every now and then, I'll get a text either directly from somebody or like through the grapevine of somebody where it's like, oh man, that person watched this and thought it was cool. Right. Did not expect that. Like we actually got one of those this morning from Larry David. And I was like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll take that. That sounds like an opinion I can value. Yeah. He's a big sports fan too. Uh, Larry, so funny, you know, is it harder to go back and do regular sports commentary after you've had so much freedom to really be yourself in so many different ways. Well, an interesting, perhaps bright side about that is I haven't really done much television with ESPN for the last, I don't even know how many months, but it's kind of mm-hmm. been a minute. They changed the schedule. The things I did were different. I really, at this point, just do a podcast with them. And mm-hmm. the podcast, I've always had all the freedoms and stuff as I've got sure, over here. Right. Like the restriction I always say with ESPN is not about the network. It's about the format of doing daily television. And like, you know, when you do a TV show every day, it's a churn, man. Like, like we just got to get this stuff out so we can get more stuff out. And so I probably won't have to make that adjustment you described because I just don't really do much regular sports TV anymore. And so with the podcast, I got 10, 12, 15, however many minutes to stretch out on a topic if I so decide. And what we're doing with the TV show really is just trying to find a way to take the energy of the podcast and the scope of the podcast. And and not just like add a video component to it, but add the resources to be able to things. I'd be like, well, what if dot, dot, dot. And now we can actually conceive of the what if. How many episodes do you guys are you doing in your first order? We're doing six for the first run. And have you had any indication of them yet? Is there a time when they'll let you know what's happening or that? is a very good question right what's the clock you guys (laughs) i've made it a point to be present in this Mm -hmm. right and i don't even mean to be one of those people that just use all them you know all all these fancy self-help terms right like we're Mm -hmm. going to be present in the moment and all of that nah but i have because it's so cool that we even got to do six like just on GP, it's it's so cool. Like in some ways, it feels like, hey man, somebody gave me a D, a major label deal to do an album. Cool. I'd love to do a second album. That would be great. But I've been over here playing this guitar and I got this chance and I'm just going to lean in on the time that we have here now because the time itself is a success. And one good thing about financial security is that I ain't got no bill that's going to depend on whether or not they pick up this show. It's just not going, you know, that's just not going to be what it is. So I guess at some point they'll let us know whether or not the show is going to get picked up. Um, but sweating it ain't going to do me any good. So mm-hmm. they'll, they'll holler at me. If we were, I don't know if we're safe. I don't know if we're in danger. I just really haven't had many conversations about it at all through these first four weeks of the show. Yeah. HBO is kind of on their own schedule. They, 
they determine things in a whole different way than everybody else. Well, also, man, they got a merger and stuff going on over there. Like, what exactly. they gonna do with me is not the biggest deal in the world. Like I said about ESPN <laughs> two years ago, you know, we, hey, what are we gonna do with you? Well, then a pandemic hit. Ain't nobody have like, nobody's job was like, hey, hey, vice president of of doing stuff with Bomani. Why don't you go over there and figure out how we gonna figure that out? No, nah, man, they had right. they had other things to do. And if they are thinking about you, it's in the negative column. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like yes. Like how many people do we need to get rid of column? Yeah. Yeah. If you're at the top of mind right then, it's not necessarily the best thing in the world. Exactly. Do you have an interest in broadening out to maybe uh, non-sports type of topics? Do you see the show doing that type of thing, or do you think it it should always be connected to sports as it's playing? I think at least as of right now, I think it should be sports, and I think that we can accomplish all the goals that we'd have for non-sports, except maybe you get more people. But like the the mm-hmm. actual accomplishment, the, the goals of the content, I think that we could accomplish the same. But like guests and things like that that's where we're always going to have like a measure of flexibility. Like I talked to Vince Staples a little bit about sports, but it's not like a deep sports interview. Sure. We talked to Tracy yeah, yeah. Morgan about a whole bunch of other things to edit, just kind of brought it into sports. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, so we went there. So there's, there's always going to be a measure of freedom to do that. And I also imagine that within the construct of like how we do topical and stuff like that. So let's say, I don't know, not wishing it. Right. But let's say like Jesse Jackson were to die this week mm. or somebody of that magnitude. Mm-hmm. I would definitely do something on game theory about the fact about Jesse Jackson, life and times, sure. all of this mm-hmm. stuff. You know, you like it was not sports. I don't think it matters that much, especially when people then buy into you. Now, I wouldn't do a whole Jesse Jackson episode, right? Like we ain't gonna start with a moment of silence and give you thirty minutes of it. Like here's clips of Jesse Jackson playing football in North Carolina A and T. You know, like mm-hmm. we're not gonna do that. <laughs> but I think that viewers will earn enough trust in me to trust my curation of what the mm-hmm. topics are. Yeah. Like, how did you even get into sports? Because you come from a couple of professors, right? Yeah. Like, you wouldn't think that the, you know, the spawn of that would be, you know, going to sports. Were your parents happy with you being in the sports world? Or they just said, you know, whatever you want to do. Was your mom an economics professor or something? Yeah, my mom's economics professor. My dad's political science professor. And she was on your show, too, by the way. She was great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was fantastic. Well, I mean, it, it helps, like, not doing the academic thing when you like go to a PhD program and flunk out of it, they, at least they know you gave it the college try, right? Like, like, like they can't say I didn't give it a go. Like after that, it's like, Oh, you gotta do what you gotta do. But for me, it was also helpful. Like Ralph Wiley is my idol in the mm-hmm. sports journalism game. And he's the one that walked me up to ESPN in the first place. Like that's mm-hmm. my most trusted mentor on this. And one of the most brilliant men I ever encountered. And one of the most brilliant men that you'll come across, like for people who are like, ESPN put out a book called Classic Wiley that's worth checking out, but also Why Black People Tend to Shout. If you haven't had a chance to check that, I recommend that you do it. And if that man can write about sports and make an impact, mm-hmm. then yeah, I can do all kinds of stuff over here in this space. But my parents are remarkably proud of what I've done in large part because they also recognize that it was a bit of the road less traveled. Like mm-hmm. there wasn't, I didn't follow a template. It's not like I went to journalism school and then started covering high schools and then it all went up. Like I was out here hustling. Like, how do I get in this door without any actual qualification? Like, selling yourself purely on the basis of talent isn't that easy, right? Now, once you do it and somebody says, okay, I'll give you a try and you prove yourself, it's different. But that's the way that I went into it. And they they watched me do it while borrowing as little money as possible from them. And I think that that total context made it to where they don't look look at this like, shouldn't you be doing something more important? 
they can see the value and importance in what I'm actually doing right now. Did that support for your parents instill the confidence that you have? Because you have a natural confidence. Who you are pitching this show 10 years yeah. ago, you know, getting into this thing, as you say, without really the right road. Did, did that come from your parents, that confidence? It did, but I don't think I fully realized it until, so the best way to put this, when I did the PhD program in North Carolina, if you talk to anybody that's ever done a PhD program, man, it, it, it just beats you up. It, it's a haze right. in so many different ways. <laughs> and it's just really, really hard. And what you do is you get a collection of people who have excelled at every turn up until this point, and then just get your ego kicked and spit on over and over again, because it's just so hard. And it was the first time that I ever questioned whether or not I could do something or not. Like my brother, mm. my brother's 13 years older than me. My brother's giving me pep talks, like on the way to the office and all of this stuff. Cause I was like 23 and it was the first time I'd ever like truly encountered a struggle where I was really trying and it was still really hard. Mm -hmm. And in the end, when uh, the, the school and I decided for different reasons that it was time for me to go do something else. Um, I called my parents and I wasn't ashamed of it. What were you getting a PhD in? Economics. Economics, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess there's no other way to put it. I mean, you could term it a failure. And I'd never been through anything like that. Mm -hmm. And leading up to it, as I, after it happened, leading up to it, my parents had said a couple of things that stuck with me. And then afterward, I just, I clearly remember just how unfazed they were by this mm. failure. It mm -hmm. didn't at all change the way that they looked at me. And I was afraid that there were people in my life who would feel like I had gotten exposed, right? Like, oh, we thought you were this. And then it turns out that, no, you can't even do this little thing. And then it hit me. Wow. So if the worst thing you can say about me is I didn't get a PhD in economics, that's really not the most terrible thing in the world for you to say. A guy that left the program with me the same year for the same reasons, man, that dude changed fields and now he's working in the Ivy League. You know what I mean? Like, like it was just like that was a thing that didn't work at the time. And having them affirm the fact that that was all it was, that was what was crucial to me. Like you talk about High Noon. High Noon got canceled. I'm cool with that. It happens sometimes. Believe me, I know. Especially this kind of business. This business, like this form of TV is different in the sense that all your favorite people that had something canceled at one point in time. They had, you know, oh, having no. things canceled after they've already been successful, right? Like having things canceled after they thought they might have been beyond something like that. Those kinds of things happen. And so for me, part of it is the confidence and talent. But the other part is really just the understanding that something bad happened and ain't the worst thing in the world. Like, or something not going the way right. you wanted to. That's not, if this show, if game theory were not good, I would have been disappointed. I think it's good. But if game theory doesn't right. get picked up, that ain't a reflection on me personally. And that's where I think mm -hmm. the big thing for me on confidence and where it comes from my parents really comes in is that these things that happen outside they don't necessarily have anything to do with me. And the success of this yeah. might only have but so much to do with me. But what I am is just so much bigger than any of this. Yeah, I think that's so smart. And so many people, especially in my industry and entertainment, they define themselves together with the with the jobs or the incidents, you know, like one of those sayings in golf is you are not your score. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, fuck, I shot it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You're not that. That's just a score. Right. You're not that. But associating yourself with something that happens, it's so difficult for people in their psyche and especially different times in your life. Like how long was it from that incident to when you had, your first job in sports like how long was that period were you like 
you know, kind of searching for different things during that period? Did you... One month. Wow, a month. Yeah, every time I've like wow. had something go bad, there was always somebody that was the best news they ever heard. Because they're like, oh, really? <laughs> no, it was, and in fact, it wasn't a month. I'm timing it wrong. In January of 2005, I found out I did not pass the micro quali- my, uh, micro econ qualifying exam. That was the death knell for me. Um, in June of that year, I had been doing some freelance stuff for ESPN, and I had a music column with AOL at the time. But then that music column, they, they I got fired from that. The early 05 was not easy, baby. Racking up the L's early. Oh, on. yeah, yeah. It was just L. It was just, just L after L after L. But they flew me up to Bristol to talk about working on, they had a project at the time that was like a sports pop culture interplay. And they wanted me to do that. And I used that as my way into the, into the, like the straight mm. sports stuff. But that was like in June, mm-hmm. but I was a freelancer for that year. I freelanced and I was an adjunct professor at uh, Elon university in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so that was how I'd gotten into the sports. And then in 06, they signed me to a one-year contract, right? For the website. And in 07 decided they did not want to renew that. And I mm. think, that contract expired in November. They gave me the news in like September. And I called a buddy of mine who did radio um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was living at the time. Well, I was living in Durham, but you know, area. And I called him and I said, I mean, I wanted to complain. I, I have just been done wrong. They just let me go and all this. And I just wanted to whine and feel sorry for my, the, the Eddie Murphy line. I just, want to, I just want to sit all home and feel sorry for myself and listen to Sade. You know, like I was, I was in that place. <laughs> and as I'm doing that with this guy, his response is, so you're saying you can do radio now. That was it. And so in January of 08, like coming around the corner on that, I started doing a weekend radio show. And then I did afternoon drive for the fall. And then they then hired me to do middays. And I did that for a year and change. And the radio station got sold and the new station decided they did not want me. And I was just like, okay, it happens. One month later, some people in Canada call and say, hey, we'd like you to host this show for us on Sirius. And I'm like, I don't know nothing about hockey. They're like, don't worry, you ain't got to do that. I said, cool. And so I did that. I love that that was your first response. Yeah, like y'all need to understand that, you know, <laughs> I might not be what you want, right? And so, but after that, they had something a year and a half later where they went out of business. And then a month later, SB Nation calls and I wind up working for them. So like, I've been fortunate in that when something not so great has happened. I've never had to like sit around the house for a year. Like, Oh my God, what's going on? I've been lucky. There's always been somebody else like, wow, those people are stupid. How'd you like to come work for us? <laughs> well, obviously, you know, you're very talented, you know, as well, you know, and that comes through, but is there like a destination in your mind or like the man, you know, what? there's this one job in sports that I really see myself as or is it like i don't know we'll just see what happens maybe i'll just create a space I don't know. it's the one i got right now yeah. if i never do a television project again after this i'll be fine like i don't know what else this is the one like this was the kind of thing that i've wanted to do and it's the first time anybody's just giving me the keys and said hey man make it work right figure it out you know get it together not only make it work if you got people who don't want to make it work the way you want to work, don't worry. We'll get somebody else in here who will. Like, I've never, like, th- that kind of thing has never happened before. And so maybe this goes 20 years. Maybe it goes six episodes. I have no idea. But if you were to ask me this question a year and a half ago, or even a year ago, that was within the window, this, this job right here would have been the answer. And I haven't really been able to think about anything other than doing this job since I started doing this job.
since I have you here, may as well get your take on a variety of subjects, which is good. Uh, I want to start with the Kyrie Irving thing in basketball because I had a take very early on that I just thought the NBA was being hypocritical very early on on the Kyrie thing, you know, and first they, they also made it seem like it was the player's choice. Like even LeBron said, I thought about it. I took my time to talk to my family and I did what I thought was best for me, you know, and everybody, everybody said that. And Kyrie said the same thing, except he made a different choice. And then suddenly he was a villain, but said, but wait a minute, everybody else got to talk to the family, think about what was right for them, you know, and fine. We all disagree with it, but just the whole notion that, Visiting players could play there who were unvaccinated, but Kyrie couldn't was just ridiculous to me. Like that whole situation was ridiculous. Yeah, but the NBA got caught in a trick bag on that because that was Officer Mayor who had to do. I mean, he didn't I mean yeah. de Blasio put the rule in, but that was it. Once that was a New York City thing, there just wasn't anything that the NBA could do. Is that is that true, Bomani? Because what jurisdiction does the city of New York have over the collective bargaining power of the NBA players. Don't they have their own agreements about who can play where? No, the issue was by the law as it was, Kyrie Irving could not work in New York City at, without being vaccinated. In New York City or at Barclays? In New York City. Uh-huh. It was that, like that team and the way it was set up. That, that, was, that was the thing. The NBA thought that it was ridiculous also. I admit that I, to this day, don't really understand. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it didn't make any bit of sense to me. It also just happened that the person on the wrong side of this was the least sympathetic figure you could possibly imagine under these circumstances. Right, of course. Which is a whole different issue. Yeah, to yeah, do yeah. with the onk earrings. Like, it's not about the onk. It's about the onk earrings. Like, once you decide you want to wear them as an earring, you have definitely crossed over to another level of your journey. Right. Like, they don't just give you those on the first date. Like, you got to get deep into this and pass some tests. And then they're like, finally, I bestow upon you these onk earrings, you know? Right. Like, it was him. And there, there have been points and moments in this where I'm like, yeah, we just tripping now because this is Kyrie. Because my belief, my problem with Kyrie was not that he did not get vaccinated. I think that was an ultimately silly decision. But I also am, you know, leery about the idea of making people put stuff inside him. I get if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. I get it. Right. However, if you're going to live that life, then you have to be diligent about it. you got to be Mr. Mask, Mr. Handwash, Mr. Don't Go Nowhere, like all of that stuff. And then Rolling Stone had the story about him up there at the uh, Native American reservation walking around with no mask on. And I'm like, bro, why don't you just bring him a blanket? Right. But, but, but also, but people are acting like the NBA didn't have protocols. The NBA yeah. has protocols. You know, if you test positive, yeah. you sit out. And if you don't, you play. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, things are as simple as that, right? Get ready, though. This is where it's going to get fun for the playoffs. We already caught a whiff of this. They're not letting you into Canada without being vaccinated. Right. The Raptors are in the playoffs. Like what I had been hoping for just for the chaos. It was Nets Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> but specifically, if they had, the Raptors and the Nets were set to play in Toronto in the play-in game at one point mm. based on how the standings went. And then the Raptors just won too many games, so they're going to wind up like in it. But if the Celtics mess around and catch a Toronto game, we're going to find out who on that team is vaccinated and who is not. The Sixers just had it with Matisse Thibel couldn't go up there for their last game because he wasn't vaccinated. They're going to have the greatest home court advantage in the history of basketball thanks to their COVID law. Toronto's going to out a lot of uh, non-vax people, right? Yes. Yeah. See, the, the, and, and the unvaxed people. Y'all just got to get better messages, man. 
Like, like everybody that's who's sitting true. out here to talk about it sounds like a fool. <laughs> like, not everybody unvaccinated is stupid. Like, right. you can give me an argument that'll add up and that'll make sense. Like, a buddy of mine wasn't vaccinated, and I was getting ready to fuss at him. But he something had happened, and his mother got vaccinated and got violently ill. Hmm. And, I mean, that does happen very rarely, but it does. Sure, absolutely. I can't tell the person who just looked at it. Like, it's one thing to read about it. I can't tell the person who just looked at it that they're being stupid for not wanting to go down that road. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not an option. But these other people, that they're not saying stuff that sound like that when they get out here and talk about it. They sound like fools or like Kyrie trying to make it seem like he's just so much smarter than everybody else. And I assure you, my brother, you are not. Yeah, but the problem is the NBA doesn't demand that they get vaccinated, you know? No, they can't. They can't. You can't do that as a sports league. Exactly. A sports league can't. can't t- like, uh, these other jobs being like, you got to get vaccinated. Oh, okay, cool. The sports league cannot set the precedent of we gonna just shoot you up with stuff. Right. It's just a little bit of a different <laughs> job. Yeah, it's just crazy, you know. And the whole issue of he can actually be in the stadium, you know, as long as he doesn't play, but he can actually be there and not wearing a mask and sit amongst everybody else, which is a whole nother crazy thing. Yeah, but again, that's all New York. Like yeah. that was the thing. Trust me, Adam Silver would love nothing more than to have a box office star actually playing basketball. No, that that is a fact. Yeah. Now, what if it had been LeBron who was unvaccinated? <laughs> uh, do you think any of that would have changed early? Like, if he was playing in New York, something probably would have changed. Yeah. Something on some big level would have like. Or how about this? If Kyrie just played for the Knicks, New York don't care about the Nets. If Kyrie played for the Knicks, look, you saw that whole thing change right before baseball opening day because right. New York cares about the Yankees. Like, once they had some issue, they're like, yo, man, we got some good old boys over here who ain't trying to get the that vaccine. Is, All of a sudden, things went out the window. That is a fact. As soon as, as soon as that baseball decision was made, like, all of that went out the window. They are not yeah, fucking I'm, around with the Yankees in New York. No, I'm telling you, if Kyrie played for the Knicks and they had a legitimate chance at winning a championship, there's no way in the world he wouldn't have been playing every wow. single game. That is interesting, yeah. Let's talk about the Brian Flores situation in the NFL. I don't know what to unpack with this one. You know, he's suing the NFL. NFL right now, right? He's not suing a team. He's suing the NFL. He added the Houston Texans to the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So I guess he is suing the teams and maybe the league too. But yeah, he, he don't had enough. All the black coaches, I mean, not all of them, but the black coaches in the NFL seem to have had their Michael Douglas falling down moment. <laughs> like, like my man has just had enough. Is all that true what he was talking about where uh, th- some of these coaches are actually incentivized to lose like actually being paid to lose like can an owner actually use those words well they can't in like they wouldn't write it down it right. wouldn't make it into a contract right like that's the kind of money you get in the in a pool line bag it would not like i you know like i don't think that money would be printed out on a check but in practice yes and flores says that he sent memos to the nfl about it. uh-huh like that, this is the thing for me with the NFL. Like y'all, y'all really did mess with the raw one. Yeah. See, I had told people about Flores and I peeped this fairly early. Like, I don't know if you know about his background, but he is from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, look up Brownsville, Brooklyn on the wiki. I love these neighborhoods that clearly were white flight neighborhoods. And yeah. you look at like the notable people section, how it changes. That's and it just hilarious. goes from like a who's who of Jewish Brooklyn to Mike Tyson and MOP. Like, like that's how it, Brownsville is no joke. But Flores went to prep school um, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and 
them them hood prep school dudes are interesting because they got a real fascinating set of friends because they friends is all these dudes that went to these prep schools mm. and so those lawyers that flores has mm -hmm. those are dudes that he went to poly prep with in brooklyn and they are pushing this like it's that like he's their man's which he is so he's got these personal injury lawyers and i'm not saying that as a judgment i'm just telling you we know they're dedicated we know how they get down right, right. what surprised me about the way they've handled this lawsuit is the way they kept their foot on the gas with mm -hmm. it. Like, they have not let this get to a, we're not really paying attention to it. Oh, and it's been a while since anything happened. Then they got these other coaches to come in, and then they found the good white man willing to say, yeah, I did an interview knowing they hadn't interviewed the minority candidate, and I felt terrible about that, and I should have said something about it right then and there. Wow. They, they, they messed with the wrong one wow so it sounds like he may have a do you think he has a shot here i don't know if he has a chance to win his lawsuit i know that he's got enough to push this to discovery mm -hmm. and that is what the nfl wants no parts of yeah nobody having to sit down under oath they don't want those problems the issue is and this is where i go back to him being from brownsville i ain't pocket watching that dude but i imagine that he's made more money than he ever thought that he could make right mm -hmm. like them cats like that it's always like look if i you know i can i can go back i can downgrade this lifestyle whatever i did this now i don't know if his woman and his kids feel like that necessarily i'm just saying i don't know if you're gonna be able to just write this dude a check and get him out of here he seems to legitimately be standing on a principle good luck yeah i know really good luck but he did get a job already right he's like an assistant somewhere so yeah, at least he's not assistant. at least he's not on the outside looking in no nah, no nah. i mean here's the thing i feel like they needed to give him a job as an assistant not to show that they're not retaliating against him but to keep him occupied yeah. if, that dude, <laughs> if, if that dude ain't got nothing but time to think about this lawsuit man <laughs> like that's right i did have a meeting with this cat about that i think i took notes on it let me go find it they don't want that <laughs> they gotta keep him distracted <laughs> yeah yeah no they can't have him just sitting around googling getting a lexus nexus subscription hell no right. <laughs> <laughs> lexus nexus very very good what the fuck is up with the nfl like why is the nba just such a good job with black coaches hiring black coaches compared to the nfl what is up with the nfl with that well be careful with the nba they ain't that good at it either they just look better than the NFL does. But over the years, it's, it'd become a thing. Well, over the years, I mean, Lenny Wilkins was a coach years ago. Bill Russell was a player coach in the 60s. They've had a longer history of it. Right. But now they're not much better anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so you got a couple that are there. Also, notably, coaches' sons who became coaches. Mm -hmm. Not that these guys didn't grind or anything like that. Because, like, Steven Silas was an assistant for 20 years uh, before mm -hmm. he got a sure. job. But all of these places have this problem. They just not try to put black people in charge. Uh, nothing man and in the nfl what makes it so wild with the nfl is that it's a broken down pipeline like with the nba the way they're making decisions now to hire coaches and what is being prioritized the value that you used to get for being a former player isn't there and the truth is basically every black coach in football or basketball is a former player right like it ain't it ain't too many of them worked up worked up a video coordinator situations that don't really happen yeah. for us um exactly. in that way but the nfl the path is through being like an offensive coordinator and that we can't get those jobs like mm -hmm. you can't even get the job that gets you the job and then when you can't get the job that gets you the job they say what well, the problem is ain't enough of them offensive coordinators mm -hmm. 
Well, well, whose call is that? But what it comes down to for all of them is can't nobody make them do nothing. The Rooney Rule came around because the scariest black man to anybody in the world at the time, Johnny Cochran, threatened to take them to court. And it was like, oh, we should probably come up with some sort of amicable solution to this mm-hmm. problem. But they don't have a Johnny Cochran that they fear right now. There's not a singular person. And Brian Flores decided he was going to be it all by himself. Yeah, I, I don't really like the uh, Rooney Rule. I think those things are so condescending. You know, I feel like there's got to be a different way. But and now they've expanded it to include uh, women as assistants. I think it's an either yeah. or situation. So they always end up diluting the whole original purpose of it you know nothing against women you know they should absolutely have opportunities but when there's a rule to consider people it's the people who have been left out of a pool they should have been in (laughs) you know the problem is the behaviors of the white men who run this Mm -hmm. like in the end it's like the Rooney rule which was effective at its implementation but it's just like any other thing where it's a shock to the system eventually the system adapts and they figure out a way to account (laughs) for what that thing is you know they're like oh okay cool got that straight now we'll go go deal with it What's so wild to me about the Rooney Rule is not even the fact that it exists. It's the fact that anybody would even oppose it. Like, all they're doing is giving somebody an interview. We ain't even mm-hmm. talking about a quota or an actual job. But it's like, yo, sit Just down and interview. have coffee. Yeah, sit down and have coffee with the dude. And somebody had to make them do that. So, like, I look at it as like, yeah, I might not like the rule, but, I mean, the absence of it, that ain't going to be nothing better. <laughs> right. That's true. That's a good point. Do you think protesting in the NFL is over? Yeah. I, I think it's over until something brings it up again. Mm-hmm. If the George Floyd thing had happened during the NFL season, there would have been protests, mm-hmm. for example. Like, I just think these things are dictated by the circumstances that surround the world. Like, I feel this way when people talk about ESPN. And they're like, oh, man, ESPN, don't be talking about, you know, this, that, and third anymore. Well, those things ain't coming up in the news. Like, when George Floyd was front page news, it was front page news for ESPN. And so what I think is going to be different about sports, athletes are not going to be out here protesting when nobody else is protesting, but they are going to carry the protest from the street into the more public sphere. And then you have things like the whole Deshaun Watson thing, which I don't know what to make of a situation like that, where, I mean, what was over 20 women who had these accusations of everything from sexual harassment to I think rape may have been uh, accusations. And as I mean, the second, that they decide the whatever it is, district attorney, whatever, mm-hmm. decided they're not going to take it. Not that he's innocent, but, you know, there's just not enough evidence. Yeah, you get no so, bill by the grand jury. He gets a, a $200 million guaranteed. The biggest guarantee That's in crazy. the history of the NFL. So for me, there's two things. One, his agent is a beast. You're not and kidding. I have, but here's the thing. I brought this up and I don't think that people understand his agent is a gentleman named David Mulgetta. Mm-hmm. And I've seen Mulgetta talk about this on Twitter. And this is something important. All the black agents have all black clients. And it's not because they don't try to get white clients. The white dudes just don't ever sign with them. Hmm. This man just got that dude $230 million guaranteed. A dude with cases hanging. Still, by the way, a grand jury still looking into him. Absolutely. All this stuff still swirling. Still got him $230 million guaranteed. And civil litigation. All I'm saying is, white man, you might want to call Deshaun Watson's agent because if that's what he could do for, for his black ass, what can he do for you? That's what you need to be asking yourself. But the thing about the Watson case that is interesting. I don't know if you saw the leaked deposition footage. No, 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 no. I didn't see it. Yeah, so so some of the deposition got leaked and the lawyer was asking him about one of his massage encounters. Mm. 
And Watson wasn't saying very much. Did you find the woman attractive? And he was like, I don't know if she was attractive. I have a girlfriend. And she's like, yo, yo, so do you, do you find this woman attractive? Yeah, but did you find her attractive? I, I had a girlfriend. Like, that was basically his argument, was that I have a girlfriend, and I'm like, first of all, are you carrying this whole thing all the way out to completion just because you don't want to tell the truth to your girlfriend? Uh... Right? I mean, because that kind of thing right there, if you can't even answer that question, it becomes impossible for me to believe that anything else you're saying is true. Because the thing with Watson is everything he's been saying has been absolute. I am innocent. Mm-hmm. I have done nothing wrong. Right. They are lying. And man, that's a dangerous, that's dangerous ground to stake out. But he got his money. I could not believe, even with the scarcity of quarterbacks in the league, that somebody would be willing to do that. And they did. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, a contract like that in football of all sports that hates giving out guaranteed money, you know, they always want to have those levers of, you know, power in those situations. Like, you know, you would think maybe at the most half of it would be guaranteed, you know. He had 13 teams vying for his services. Wow. That's basically half the league. And it's ironic that Colin Kaepernick can't get a arrested all he did was protest something that was actually happening deshaun watson is accused of raping women and they give him he gets 200 million dollars at his it's like they can't bring him back into the nfl soon enough no and so they got lucky because he sat that year last year even though he got his money right now what watson's people will tell you and i do think there's something to this it's 22 accusations after a certain point as they start coming in each additional accusation becomes less credible Mm. and it becomes less credible just because that's when the con artists do show up Mm. and there is a potential payday in this, right? Like a class action suit type of thing. Yeah, exactly. However, there are women who file criminal complaints against him who did not file civil complaints. Mm. I find that to be very compelling. (laughs) That's just, that's just like, I'm just not in a position to ignore. I always look at the initial accusations. Those are usually the most compelling you know, because those are the people where when it happens like that and, you know, they're very graphic and all those things, it's hard for somebody to just make things like that up, you know? Yeah. Well, we're also learning is a whole lot of our brethren are out here getting them nasty massages. Like, I didn't realize, <laughs> apparently, how common. Because they're just like, yo, what's the big deal? I'm like, I, I just didn't know that that, like, like you see all the massage places. I just figured they was all laundering money. I didn't realize y'all was actually walking in them spots. Nasty like, like, like you think about New York City when you see some of the spots for a massage. I'm like, you see that on the outside, they walk inside and take your clothes off? Welcome to the world, Bomani. There's a whole world out there you didn't know, you know? Just a kid didn't from know. the South. You didn't know this was it going didn't, on. Didn't, didn't know. I just feel like you could do that yourself. <laughs> yeah. Probably better. All right, you guys. Uh, Bomani, I really appreciate you being here, man. Game Theory, you guys, it's so entertaining. It's so interesting informative so many things i love your man on the street stuff too oh thank you man i wish you hated it no you look good in that you look comfortable in that you know when you're talking yeah to let me tell you something man we've done two practice shoots and as of this conversation we have shot five man on the street episodes yeah. the weather is always bad we have not had good weather right. yet yeah and we'd be out there after a full day of work till 10 30 11 o'clock at night yeah. and the first time we did it i was so tired and i was like man i hope this comes out terribly incorrect everybody loves it it's the <laughs> best part of the show i ain't never gonna get no sleep fucking around with y'all those aren't easy to do too when i was doing the daily show what was tough was 
you had to get people to say things, you know, and present things in a different way. And it was really, man, that stuff was hard, you know? Oh yeah. But we got Stu. That's one thing that's helpful, man. Our, our team, we got Stu. Stu's I think, I think, you know, my man, Ted Trumper, Ted's working on this yeah. stuff. And so we got yeah. like, we have great people working on these things, man. Like every day I look around and I'm just like amazed at how good at their jobs. All these people are. Well, give a what's up to everybody for me guys. Catch game theory. If you don't catch it on Sunday nights, it's streaming on HBO max. I believe yes, sir. all the HBO platform. There we go. There <laughs> we go. Bomani, Bomani Jones. All right, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate Good it. Good luck with the show.